Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Flourish FM. We're delighted to bring you today's conversation with Professor Angie Hobbs, classicist and philosopher with expertise on ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, she's Professor of the Public Understanding of Philosophy at the University of Warwick, and prior to this, she was Professor of Public Understanding of Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Her most recent book is Plato's Public, a Ladybird Expert book, and she's a regular speaker on many major podcasts and TV programs and radio programs, including the, the BBC Radio podcast In Our Time, which is also on BBC Radio 4, and she's spoken on many major TV programs and events all around the world, including in the UK House of Parliament, the Athens Democracy Forum, and the World Economic Forum. Today, we had a fantastic conversation with her. You're gonna love it. Nick, what did you really enjoy about this conversation? Yeah, she did all that beautiful stuff and, and then actually took time to sit down in the cellar with us for a little while, but, but that was great. So yeah, she, she was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed kind of this, she really identified like when we talk about flourishing, it can't just be a me thing. It has to be a we thing, right? So these these elements of social connection and how we need to think about flourishing, not just on an individual level, but flourishing as communities. And then I think that led her to chat a bit about, you know, eudaimonia or eudaimonia, and, uh, which was a lot of fun for me being a dissertation topic, but just the, the you know, fulfilling our kind of greatest virtues, our greatest faculties, like living up to our potential and then kind of what that means for character and ethics mm -hmm. as well. So really interesting conversation. Great. Thanks, man. Okay. Here we have our conversation with Professor Angie Hobbs. Hi there. Hi, Nick. Hello, nice to meet you. Beautiful flowers. I regarded buying flowers each week as part of my pandemic expenses. So I always, <laughs> hang on, I'm just going to alter that slightly. Is it very naughty to have a couple of my book covers in the background? No, no, this oh, is very appropriate. It's expected. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. We're delighted to have you here, an expert on human flourishing, particularly in the ancient world. And I mean, let's dive right in with that question. As an expert on human flourishing, how would you define human flourishing? I define it as something more objective than uh, happiness. Uh, so it's not so much about a subjective feeling of happiness, let alone a feeling of pleasure. To me, it is about the best actualization, the best fulfillment of our faculties. Okay. And th those faculties could be, well, all our faculties, intellectual, emotional, imaginative, physical. Okay, so the fulfillment of all our faculties or some in particular? I think all of them, for me. If you're okay. asking me what I think flourishing yeah, is, no, that's all, what just all, all, yeah, all, yeah, our, all, all our faculties, yes. Okay, so let's let's dig a little deeper on that then. So, um, I mean, there's. I, but I did say I did say the best actualization of all our faculties. You know, we all have the capacity to behave very badly, so, okay, so we, this... we need to come back to this word "best" at some yeah, point. Is that is that well? Let's well let's maybe do that now. Is that best in terms of um, morally best, or to the highest standard, or a blend of the two? The way that we can actualize our faculties, that we live the best life uh, individually and for our communities, mm -hmm. that we, so because the individual is, for me, is part of the community, so of course there's going to be a moral dimension to that. It will mean looking at what kind of values and virtues are going to 
best help us fulfill those faculties. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. And obviously this is presumably going to be quite deeply inspired by ancient philosophy, particularly perhaps Mm. ancient Greek philosophy on which you're an expert and a scholar. And I mean, this is where in ancient Greek philosophy is where flourishing, the concept of flourishing in Western thought finds its origins in the concept of eudaimonia, which is often translated as happiness or flourishing. So let's let's get into kind of your your expert view on that. What exactly is eudaimonia, and how do Plato and Aristotle's views on that differ? But also, how has this inspired your view of flourishing? You just outlined there. Wow, a lot of questions there. Okay, so let, let's <laughs> let's start. Time, I can <laughs> let's start with Plato. So yeah, eudaimonia literally just means living um, under the guardianship of a beneficent guardian spirit, a beneficent daimon. It's more objective than a subjective notion of feeling happy. It might include feeling happy. It does a bit with Aristotle, less so with Plato, but it is much more objective. You can point to somebody across the street. You don't know how they're feeling that day, but you can say that person is living a eudaimon life. That person is eudaimon. And as we've just been discussing, it is very much about the best actualization of your best faculties. Now, in my interpretation, those faculties would very much include our physical faculties too. In Plato, not so much. Plato is particularly concentrates on our psychic faculties, the, the, uh, the capacities of our psyche, and he looks at three in particular. He looks at reason, which desires truth and reality. Uh, then there's a, a, a second faculty, which is the spirited element in us, which desires success and honour and victory. Um, and then we have our appetites for food, drink, sex, the money needed or possibly needed to acquire them. And for Plato, sorry, for Plato, eudaimonia consists in the correct attunement of these faculties. It, it, it's a, 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 the notion of the harmony of the psyche. He actually uses the phrase mental health, psychic health, for the first time that we know of in the West, at least, and I'm sure we'll come back to that notion of health. What does this mean in practice for Plato? It means that our reason needs to be in control, that this kind of harmonious attunement of our psychic faculties can't happen unless our reason is in control, that our spirited element is supporting the decrees of reason, and our appetites are basically doing what they're told. Mm-hmm. And it's reason's job only to ensure to in, it's reason's job to ensure that we fulfill the best potential of all our three faculties. Now, what does best mean here? Clearly, the a trillion dollar word, and it needs reason to think very carefully about which desires of the spirited element and our appetites in particular should be fulfilled. Not every desire should be fulfilled in order um, for the best fulfillment, the best actualization of our faculties to take place. So we've got this notion of a tripartite psyche Mm -hmm. uh, with reason in control, 
aided and abetted by the spirited element, the appetites basically doing what they're told, reason wanting to, sorry, reason aiming to fulfill the best potential of all three parts of the psyche. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, we have a situation where eudaimonia takes place, our human flourishing takes place, but also, says Plato, it's going to be the same psychic structure that amounts to our human virtue. Uh, he identifies justice in the soul, which is a very broad ranging word in Plato. It basically means right conduct. And he says human justice, our individual justice, is the same psychic structure as our individual uh, flourishing, our individual eudaimonia. So he, in practice, identifies virtue and flourishing. A pretty extreme view. I mean, he takes it to a very extreme levels. He says mm -hmm. that even if you are wrongly accused of of malpractice, if you're being tortured and put to death, you can still be a flourishing person uh, if your virtue is intact, if your if your psyche is still in this harmony. Aristotle's wow. going to say, no, no, that's nonsense. Goodness me, we need at least minimal uh, physical satisfaction. But Plato takes this very extreme view. And yeah, too extreme for many, too extreme for me. I would rather have some of the physical faculties brought in there. However, there is so much about Plato's vision, which I think is incredibly rich. And I'm sure we will tease out as the conversation goes on. Because firstly, this whole notion of mental health, this identification of our individual flourishing, our well-being um, with our virtue, and that is our mental health. And that's been hugely influential throughout Western thought. Uh, it was very influential on Freud. So I'm sure that's something we'll want to discuss. Also, Plato says, you can't do this on your own, or very, very few people, maybe Socrates, could achieve this flourishing on their own in a, in a poor uh, social and political environment, but most of us need the right kind of social, cultural and political environment in order to um, acquire the kind of values, the kind of virtues which will enable us to flourish in this way. So Plato is, Plato really focuses as of course we know from his work, The Republic, on what kind of social and political structure is needed, what kind of education. Education, hugely important for Plato. And then there's this notion that, the, and this is something that really appeals to me, that the basic ethical questions for Plato, as indeed they will be for Aristotle, are how should I live and what sort of person should I be? Really basic questions agent-centered, centered on the ethical agent rather than the ethical act. So it's about an agent, an ethical agent, a person living a whole life. It's a whole person living a whole life and shaping that life, styling that life in the sense that you can see a life and a character 
in narrative terms, in terms which are capable of aesthetic evaluation. So you get this really close relationship in Plato between goodness and beauty, which I find very appealing. It's an approach to ethics, which because it's looking at a whole person living a whole life, and it it can respond to the complexities of our lived experience, which to me make this a more attractive approach to ethics than, say, a consequentialist approach, which looks simply at the greatest good of the greatest number in terms of actions uh, performed or... or or a duty-based approach such as you might get in Kant, which again looks what actions must not be performed, what are the, the right and um, dutiful actions to perform. So for me, this ethics of flourishing mm-hmm. um, is immensely appealing. And again, it's been hugely influential, sometimes in quite controversial ways, for instance, in in Nietzsche and Foucault. And as we'll see later, there are plenty of problems attached to it. But for me, it it speaks to something very deep in me. I, I really respond to the connections that Plato makes, both between ethics and political and social theory, and between ethics and aesthetics. So you, you've brought us in so many great directions here, right? We threw a bunch of questions out and you threw back a bunch of threads that I'd really love to sort of pull on. So I want, I want to walk us through a couple of these, give you a chance to respond and, and then we'll move. I know, and, and, and we've only, we've only done the first of John's questions because we've only looked at Plato. <laughs> we haven't yet looked at the differences between Plato and Aristotle or what we can learn from all this now. So we've just begun. Yes. Yeah, okay. We have just begun. Yeah. And I actually want to sort of um, pull on a different difference, which is, as I heard you describing, right, eudaimonia or eudaimonia, and by the way, my, we haven't had a chance to talk, but my dissertation was on this in classroom settings, but I'm looking oh, at wow. it from a more scientific perspective, yeah. right? And the way I heard you describe it, I thought, well, wow, that sounds in some way, shape, or form like hedonism, and this will sometimes get conflated in the science as well. In fact, there are plenty of scholars who will argue that there really isn't a difference, right? Now, I'm not one of them, but I would love if you would, for our the would-be flourishers listening, if you would sort of tease out these, you know, different aims. What's the difference between eudaimonia and hedonism in terms of some objectives? And then I'd love, you've mentioned the different faculties, what are the different faculties besides the one you mentioned, which is physical, right? From you, from your perspective, from Professor Angie Hobbs' perspective, we'll leave Plato for <laughs> Yeah, right. So from my perspective, the different faculties would incorporate our intellectual, emotional, imaginative, and physical faculties, those four right. main groups. Now, is it the same as hedonism? It depends on how you uh, define pleasure, of course, if hedonism is connected with head and their pleasure. But if, if we normally interpret pleasure in terms of sensation, in terms of feeling pleasure, and if that's the case, then no. And in fact, the reason I first so got interested in an ethics of flourishing and the concept of flourishing was precisely, and I can't remember which happened first, but I came across Nozick's Pleasure Machine in Anarchy State and Utopia. Um, the idea, you know, if you could be kind of plugged into a machine and you were going to feel 
non-stop pleasure forevermore. And you would never regret it once you'd been plugged into that machine. Would you, in your current state, as you are now, agree to be plugged in? And I felt, oh, no, no, there would be just so much potential of human life would just not happen. I, It would there'd be so much that would be remain unfulfilled. And also how inappropriate to be laughing gleefully with pleasure when you hear about things such as, I don't know, the invasion of Ukraine or the uh, new wave in the pandemic or the dangers of climate change. There are times in our life which it, when it is simply not appropriate or even possible to feel pleasure. But I think we can still flourish even in those hard times because you can always say, how can I best use my faculties, my potential to increase my well-being and the well-being of my community even given these current difficult circumstances. So I would definitely want to make a very clear distinction between eudaimonia and pleasure. But also when I started to think about the Nozick article, I also, sorry, when I started to think about Nozick's pleasure machine, I felt that for me, I wanted to extend this experiment to a happiness machine as well. So because we can feel happy when you're not necessarily feeling great physical pleasure, but you can still feel very content, very happy. But again, I didn't want a life where I knew I was always going to feel happy, no matter what was going on around me, no matter who was dying or in pain. Um, and I felt that would be an impoverished life. And it would not be a rich life and it would not be the best possible life that I could live. So I wanted to extend that experiment even to the subjective feeling of happiness. And I distinguish eudaimonia, flourishing well-being, even from happiness as well as pleasure. And at about the same time, I came across Plato's great, great dialogue, The Gorgias. And there's a character in The Gorgias called Callicles who starts off, he doesn't end here, but he starts off saying that the good is simply unqualified pleasure. Um, later on in the debate with Socrates, he is forced to admit that, in fact, he does qualify different kinds of pleasure and thinks that some are good and some bad, and he's not prepared to accept cowardly pleasures because he's all into being the big man. But again, I read that at about the same time, and again, it got me thinking, what's the relation between eudaimonia, pleasure? What do we really want from life? You know, when we um, look back on our lives, what do we want to think we've achieved? And is it just that, oh, I've, I've felt pleasure all the time? No, not for me. Well, and you mentioned a really important word here, which is richness. And that mm. immediately popped into my head as you started to describe this, this pleasure machine. And this has been a pretty consistent theme in some of our other conversations. We, we had on Todd Kashchin of George Mason, who's written a book called The Upside of Your Dark Side and really argues for psychological richness, distress tolerance, and things of that nature. And it's such a, I think, a, a 
perfect segue to talking a little bit about some of these virtues and the relationship of virtue cultivation to eudaimonia. And I've heard you in past interviews describe four particular virtues that you think are critically important. And just hearing your description there, it seems to me that these virtues are particularly necessary when we are feeling unpleasantness, right? When we are not yeah. in a state of pleasure. And they are, as I, as I recall, and you please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm looking at my notes here, resilience, right? Mm-hmm. Mental yeah. agility, creativity or imagination, as you said, and empathy. Will you, will you kind of connect these dots a little bit more for us between eudaimonia, some of these virtues, and navigating unpleasantness? Yes. I mean, those were four sets of values and virtues that I thought were particularly important right now in these very turbulent times. Um, in, uh, in that talk, I was particularly looking at what kind of virtues we need in a pandemic, but you could add climate change, you could add massive political instability and threats to democracy, you could add Black Lives Matter and fights for social justice. So we are clearly living in really stormy seas at the moment. What are we going to hang on to? And for that, again, is another reason I, I am so attracted to an ethics and politics of flourishing, because that gives you a secure framework of an overall notion of what it means to live a full, rich human life, yeah. both for yourself and your community. Now, the canvas in that frame will vary a bit from community to community, from age to age. Uh, The picture will vary a bit. It's not one picture which is going to exist for all time. But the framework needs to be solid. And I argued that particularly in stormy times, you need these four sets of virtues and associated values to build and construct and maintain the solid framework. Yes, so we, of course, we need resilience. Um, My goodness me, never, never more so. Um, But that is connected to agility. Now, you might think, oh, they don't go together. You know, if you're going to be resilient, aren't you just like the oak in the storm and you stay strong and stable uh, forever? Well, no, not necessarily. If new situations emerge, if the Uh, Let's hope not. But if uh, a new variant of COVID emerges, if things get even worse on the Ukraine, you know, in Ukraine or in Eastern, former Eastern Europe, uh, we need agility. We need adaptability. We need to be able to take in new information very fast, accept it, not be in denial of it and think really quickly. how, How do we adapt to this? And that adaptability is part of the resilience. But again, so is the creativity, because having accepted the new reality, the maybe worse reality, and taken that on board and faced up to it with courage, with resilience, um, you don't just need agility to analyse it and understand what's going on, you also need imagination and creativity to think, how do I respond? And and these are all uh, virtues that I believe philosophy can help uh, instill, engender and and foster. Philosophy, we you know we know it's really good at critical analysis and the 
uh, conceptual analysis, the analysis of of deductive and inductive arguments and so on. But philosophy is also fabulous uh, for fostering our imagination because it forces us to look for counterfactuals, to invent different scenarios, to look at different possible outcomes, to imagine a world where people live and, and think and believe uh, differently from how they may do in our own particular postcode. So again, that creativity is needed. And of course, we need compassion. We need, if we've got the imagination to understand different possible scenarios, that imagination is also going to be needed so we can help work out what impact the different scenarios are going to have on different groups, on different people, and feel their pain and think, well, no, we can't take root A out of this uh, tragedy. This, or so We can't take root A out of this very difficult situation because the impact on this particular social group is just too high. So they all, to me, work together. And they're always yeah. needed, even when life is going well. But when life is going badly, my goodness we need them so and to this extent though I don't by all means agree with everything Plato or Aristotle says and we'll come back to that later I think they are absolutely right to say that a flourishing life and a virtuous life they may not be as identical as Plato likes to paint but they're very very closely intertwined Um, so we need to think not just about what does a flourishing life look like, but what values and virtues are needed to help create it and maintain it and to stay strong when things get tough. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Really, really well said. Um, Yeah, as you were describing all of these, my thoughts were these all seem connected to underlying levels of optimism. They all seem connected to hope, right? And the ability to sort of weather the storm, right? Not just be that oak, but be agile. I love your mention of counterfactuals. And there's just so many interesting relationships we can tug on here. And maybe we'll be able to come back to them. For now, I want to take us on a a slightly different turn. You mentioned something earlier that John and I really want to dig into with you. Um, I'll often use the phrase with people that we, we don't flourish in a vacuum, Right. And our strengths aren't recognized even in a vacuum. Right. The environment, the ecosystem around us matters. You've sort of raised this what I think could be a tension between community values and virtues or maybe an individual's values and virtues. Ideally, those are sort of harmonious and aligned. Oftentimes they're not. Would you tease out that that tension or potential tension a little bit more and, and talk about how you think? Um, someone might navigate that if they do find themselves in a community where values are misaligned, how might that impact their sense of eudaimonia? How might that impact their ability to cultivate virtues that they find valuable, maybe if the community around them does not? Now, you've got two kinds of tension here, haven't you? You've got a tension between the selfish individual who thinks they're going to live the best possible life if they just concentrate on their own wealth, on their own power. Um, Let's look at that individual first. But then we've also got a tension between supposing you're basically a good individual, but in a corrupt 
society. And so yeah. your maybe your values shouldn't be aligning with that very corrupt sure. society. Yeah. Yeah. So it can work two ways around. So let's look at, first of all, at a, a selfish and rather bad individual who's living in a basically good society. Let's start there. Um, now, again, I think Plato is so helpful here. So in both Callicles in his Gorgias and in Thrasymachus in Republic Book One, he gives us, they're, they're slightly different views, but they both basically give us views of hu human flourishing based on the view that flourishing consists in the accumulation and display of material wealth and in power over others and in the kind of freedom from constraint by other forces that gives you power over others. And I think brilliantly Plato shows that this is, again, to use the terminology we've been using, this is a very impoverished, this is not a rich view of what a human life can be. Uh, this is fundamentally, Plato says, to misunderstand what it is to be a human being. They are just simply looking at the human psyche in terms of the appetites for food, drink, sex, material, wealth and goods, and also that we talked about the spirited part of the soul, which wants success and victory. It's ambitious, but they directed that ambition onto the wrong thing because they're not guided by reason. The other two parts of their psyche have gone astray and are latching onto the wrong goods and are living these this really thin life. They might think they're rich, but they're actually really poor. Um, and they aren't they're, you know, what their lives are fairly pointless. And that's, I think, really an interesting way to look at it. But then you've got the person. Can I just oh, jump in here really quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, what you're saying is resonating so much because it, it takes me back to some of the studies I've seen. Because you, you mentioned this appetite. We come back to hedonism. And all I could think of there is the studies that sort of suggest that this hedonic life, this hedonistic focus, oftentimes will not correlate or has really no statistical connection to overall life satisfaction fulfillment. And what I hear you saying is a potential lack of meaning, a lack of depth, a lack yes. of richness, right? It's a lot of only purpose. about the pursuit yes. of, yes, yes, but a lack it, of purpose. I mean, it's very interesting. So often when people are asked, what do they want to, to feel? People say, I want to feel my life has some meaning, that there's some purpose yeah. to be existing on the planet. You know, I was born, I'm going to die, I'm here conscious for a bit. What does it mean? And whether some people look to religion to provide meaning, not everybody feels able to do that. But one of the reasons I'm so attracted to an ethics and politics of flourishing with its group with its roots in ancient Greek philosophy, is because it can help give shape. We've been talking about shape, narrative structure, meaning to a life, to mm -hmm. a character, whether or not you look to a particular religion or not. It, it, it's, a, it's an approach to ethics that can work both with all the world's major religions, but also without religion. And, and a lot of the work I do actually is with churches on interfaith dialogue and faith secular dialogue and whether a reworked 
revitalized ancient Greek ethics of flourishing can help reduce current tensions. Mm. And it's such a fabulous resource because yeah. it it provides a means for dialogue and discussion to take place between people of very different religious beliefs, but they don't feel they're being threatened because they're using debates and arguments and images uh, from 2,500 years ago before any of the world's, well, before um, obviously Christianity and Islam arose. There was Judaism, of course, but it was not particularly... Um, as far as we know, it was not referenced at all in the ancient Greek philosophers I'm talking about. It wasn't until many years into the common era that uh, Jewish uh, thought started to interact uh, closely with ancient uh, Greek philosophy. So um, hugely helpful, and it's a, sa a, a safe space, if that makes any sense, that people <clears throat> don't feel threatened, and yet they can talk about very deep ideas, and I, it's, it's a wonderful resource. It's a resource for the whole world. I mm -hmm. passionately believe that ancient Greek philosophy is a global resource. Um, I'm not saying we should go back to those times. Of course not. Um, there was slavery. Conditions for women were bad. There were lots of problems. We don't want to go back to ancient Greece, but there's so much we can learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, so thank you so much for these incredibly rich answers to, to Nick's questions. Here, Angie, and there's so much I'd like to continue. So many threads, as, as Nick put it, I'd, I'd like to also continue pulling on here. But particularly something you've just said there uh, before we proceed further. Um, the thing you, what you just said about the ethics and politics of flourishing being something that's so important now and doesn't require any particular religion to be attached to mm -hmm. any form of religious belief. The Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, they they engage in this very wise study of the areas of life that contribute towards human well-being and identify four pathways to flourishing. So areas of life that significantly enhance each of the areas of well-being, identify mm. areas such as happiness and life satisfaction and um, good social relationships and character and virtue. And those four areas are family, work, education, and religious community. And it seems to me one of the challenges we face in research and well-being and flourishing is to, as it were, how whether we can have a kind of a pathway to flourishing that is outside of religious community, but maintains all the benefits the religious community has, you know, this wider sense of meaning, this close connection mm. with others and so on, what we mm. can learn from religious communities yes. and religion that can help us flourish without, you know, just saying to people, hey, just become religious. That's the way you can flourish because that, you know, that isn't advice that everyone wants to receive, right? So just connecting with the thing you've just said then about how the ethics and politics of flourishing is a kind of a non-religious space that can really enhance well-being, perhaps. You didn't put it in those terms, but perhaps can enhance well-being. Do you think that this has a place in today's world as something that people can adopt in a kind of a secular world as a way of enhancing their, their well-being more broadly and, and encouraging interfaith dialogue as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, we can get so much um, of the benefits of religious community and, and honour them and adapt them. One doesn't have to be religious oneself to learn from and many of the benefits that religious community offer. So absolutely, I think that the ethics and politics of flourishing can be used in uh, 
atheistic and agnostic um, mm. settings, but also in religious settings. I mean, a, a lot of the people I discuss with have very profound religious belief, and they still think it can be helpful. I, I would want to go back to the four pathways that you mentioned. Um, yeah. I think I'm sure I know Plato for a start would want to say, well, we need to rethink family because in in the Republic, very controversially for the two guardian classes, he gets rid of the nuclear family. Now, again, I don't endorse that, but we do have to recognise that we also need to think very broadly and imaginatively, that word again, imagination, not just about what religious community might mean or how it might be adapted, but what family might mean. Because not mm-hmm. everybody has a close blood family. Some people do, but their families are awful <laughs> and they want to escape them. They've been abused by their family. They've needed to escape. So, But there can be different kinds of families. So I think we're looking what we're looking here are different kinds of social connection mm-hmm. um different kinds it could be with individual friends but it could be with groups that we are friends or close neighbors that we regard as our family work colleagues again we we share certain um, objectives ideals they can be regarded as a different kind of community we're in interaction with and then either a religious community or a community based on a very strong um, set of beliefs. So I am myself, I'm I'm agnostic, um, but I get a lot of comfort from working for various goals that I feel very strongly about. I work with various charities, particularly refugee tales about the plight of refugees and asylum seekers, and I'm, we're all trying to improve the UK law in respect of ending indefinite detention. I get a lot of purpose and meaning in my life. That's just one example from working with them, uh, with various environmental programmes, my daughter's not religious but is very very passionate about green concerns gets a lot mm-hmm. of strength from those groups so that i think what i'm hearing from that harvard program that you mentioned are connections with different kinds of community overlapping communities and this is interesting we've not yet really discussed aristotle and his i'm sure we will and his notion of eudaimonia but as we know for Aristotle, friendship is absolutely crucial, both in the uh, building as a crucial building block in an individual flourishing life, but also in the life of the polis. It's absolutely crucial um, as both as a constituent of a good life, but also as a a, a platform. Um, for displaying certain virtues such as justice and generosity, um, for building trust in a state. And we worry about, you know, we rightly worry about what Aristotle says about friendship because, of course, we we rightly worry about the potential for corruption and uh, nepotism. But there's also a lot to be learned from what he says, Mm -hmm. that a real community and a really good life just for the individual is to a large extent, formed from these overlapping communities that we feel 
associated with. So I think there's a lot in what you're telling me about the Harvard program, but I would want, from my perspective, from my ancient Greek perspective, I would want to say, let's be imaginative about what family means now Mm -hmm. and what religious community means. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I think that's a really important point you've made. I mean, I I should say it's, it's, you know, it's based on existing research on well-being and what that research shows is about the major factors that contribute towards enhancing well-being over time and, and family, you know, marriage, for example, having children is one of those areas. But I absolutely think that that you're that you're right, and that's a very important point you've made to think about. Well, what does it what what does family really mean? Because of course, one can call their aunt or their uncle someone who's not a, a blood relative, right, and so on. Yeah. Um, family, as, as as Wittgenstein pointed out, with notion of family resemblance concepts, family is a is not a is not a clear term, right? It has, yes, it has a, yes. many items of of families, um, and the role that friendship can play in flourishing. I think is a super important area to explore. And I'd love to discuss discuss this more with you now, and this connects quite nicely with one of the uh, areas of your work that Nick and I were looking into ahead of this interview. So you did an interview with Cabinet Magazine. Which really enjoyed reading, and on that you've—I mean—that's part of what you've where you've written and spoken on the importance of friendship in ancient Greek thought mm. to flourishing. And in that interview, you observe that I'm going to quote you here, if you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> you've read, you read it more recently than me, so yes. <laughs> yeah, I've made, I made a note of a couple of quotes here. So, quote: "The Greek notion of ethics clearly allows space for friendship as a necessary constituent of a good flourishing life, and as crucial in in moral and intellectual development." End quote. And you'll say, quote, Aristotle clearly says, and Plato can be read as implying, that we need friendships in order to actualize our faculties to be fully human. Mm. It's not that we need them in some immediate practical way, but rather to flourish fully as human beings in all our moral and intellectual capabilities. End quote. And just for listeners, we'll share a link to this in, mm. in the show notes. So why do you think the role of sorry, what do you think the role of friendship is in human flourishing? And what can we learn from Plato and Aristotle about friendship's role in how we lead flourishing lives? Yes, they both um, analyse different kinds of friendship. Um, Plato in the Lysis talks about attraction of like for like, attraction of opposites for opposites, but what he seems to privilege most is the attraction of a good person for a good person, not because they're alike, but because they're delighting in enjoying each other's goodness. Aristotle seems to reach a fairly similar conclusion. Again, he looks at the kinds of friendships that arise out of utility. We just need each other or through shared activity, might be sport, it might be work. But again, he also privileges the friendship of a good person for a good person because we're delighting in their goodness. It's enjoyable in itself. It enriches life in itself, but it also is a means by which we can exercise compassion, generosity, justice, fairness. But also there's so much we, even intellectually, um, we need friendship for at least part of our intellectual journey. They both say that. Both Plato and Aristotle say that. So even if At the very final pinnacle in Plato's intellectual ascent um, that he describes, we are viewing the form of the good or the form of beauty on its own. We need to start doing philosophy with others in dialogue, through debate. And if we're on good and friendly terms with those others, then that 
debate will be much more collaborative and much more productive. So Plato makes a really clear distinction, which I think actually is very relevant to current conditions in the world, distinguishing the philosopher from the sophist. Sophists just seek to win arguments by whatever means possible, even if it means making the weaker argument appear the stronger. They're just out for victory. Uh, but the philosopher is searching for truth. And unless they're very, very advanced up the philosophical mountain, it is much easier to search with other people in dialogue, in debate, through Socratic question and answer. Uh, we And if you're on friendly terms, then it will be a much more productive conversation. And Aristotle, again, has says fairly similar things. It may be that ultimately we have our, we connect with his notion of God as pure thought thinking itself and we do that on our own. But on the whole, he says, even if our final vision um, of the perfect philosopher is something that happens when they're on their own, nearly all the time, he says, and this is at the end of The Ethics, his book, The Ethics, we need others to help us because we're too frail. As humans, we just don't have the, the stamina, the, the resilience, the intellectual energy to manage all this by ourselves. So not only do we need friendship just to make life enjoyable and rich and to exercise um, the virtues of character, such as justice and generosity, but we also nearly always need friendship to exercise the intellectual virtues. Uh, we need the, these communities of, of friends, um, an idea, of course, that's later going to be taken up in the Hellenistic period by, by Epicurus and in different ways by the Stoics. This notion of a community of friends, even to achieve um, real progress in, in philosophy. So, and again, um, that recognition of human frailty, but it's a frailty that can also be viewed as a strength. It's not a, it, you know, needing other, knowing, recognizing that you need other people to help you on the journey. Um, is is that, that recognition is itself a strength, I think. So much positive there. And it also, it also made me kind of come back to our earlier conversation, you know, the, this, sort of intellectual growth and the potential for debate. And it's so much easier when it's with friends. And then I also had the thought, yes, and sometimes it's harder. Sometimes friends don't want to cross those lines with each other. And it made me think of what we talked about earlier, the virtue cultivation of being resilient, yeah. being mentally agile, experiencing the distress of, of maybe kind of being a little uncomfortable with a friend, right? Yeah. Like knowing that there's some psychological safety and it's ultimately a safe space, but you're you're navigating these uncomfortable waters for a larger purpose, right? And to grow and to develop some of these these virtues. I think and so. A sense of character. I yeah. think if if you're if you're a real friend, and this could be for a human being or it could be for your country, but if you're a real friend, you will have the courage, politely but clearly to point out when you think your friend or your country or your organization, you know, whatever you're connected with is taking a wrong path. And because if you're a real friend, you want the good of the other person or the good of your country or the good of your organization. And you want that more than their approval of you and them just liking you. And if you're putting being liked and not ruffling feathers ahead of helping another person or your 
business or your country, then you're being a bit selfish. You're thinking about yourself. You just want to be liked. And that's that's egotistical and it's it's lazy and it's cowardly. The real friend will say what needs to be said. Yeah. So how does all of this, because you've used this word multiple times, I'm very interested in this. How does all of this jive with a sense of harmony, right? Bringing all of these different parts of ourselves sort of into harmonious alignment, maybe, right? Where you've got these, well, I'm trying to kind of satisfy these appetites, um, but sometimes I'm experiencing distress and I've got to be resilient and mentally agile and because harmony seems to me to suggest that we're sort of in line. The psychological word might be coherence, right? That yeah. your your character and your behavior yeah. is sort of in line. Yes. How you envision yourself to be or how you hope to be, right? How do you think of harmony? Can you can you sort of wrap that up for us a bit? Yes, it's a, it's about integrity of psychic integrity, integrity of character, that the different aspects of yourself are in tune, are at peace with each other, they're in alignment, they're not fighting each other, you're not fragmenting. Um, and, and this was the aspect that so interested Freud uh, when he is talks about the passages in Plato's Republic. In fact, I'm so sad. I know it's 444 in the Republic. When we, I think it's 443 to 444, when he, he first brings in this notion of psychic harmony and says it's a kind of mental health. And what Freud takes from this is we're talking about a personality that is one and not many. And indeed, Plato uses that phrase himself, that we are one and not many. We're not fragmented. We're not fractured. Because of that way, all sorts of uh, psychological disturbances and, and indeed mental illness lie. I mean, look at schizophrenia. We are literally split in schizophrenia. So that for me is is really important. But I, I really like the fact that Plato uses the, this musical terminology. For me, that's very um, a rich way of looking at it. Now, we should be clear here that the, the ancient Greeks don't have our concept of complex harmony. So when Plato uses a musical terms, and he means it to be a musical term in terms of harmonization and creating harmony, it's much more what we would call being in tune. Um, it's about attuning the notes on the scale. And, okay, so let's get the... But, so metaphorically, it's it's still perfectly accurate to talk in terms of musical harmony for Plato's theory. And it's about, again, styling a life. You're creating yourself and your life as if you were a work of art. And a work of art that's both good and beautiful. And what is it that makes it good and beautiful? It's the integrity of it. It's the authenticity of it. It's the purpose and meaning of it. Uh, so though Plato is quite deliberately using musical uh, similes in the Republic for attuning the, the, the different faculties in the psyche, I think he's right to do that. And it's not just a metaphor. He really wants us to think about these aesthetic potentialities and the relationship between goodness and beauty, mm -hmm. which is, is, is very deep, I think. Yeah. Thank you. That, that's absolutely fascinating, this connection here with music and the mind and music and, and living a flourishing life in particular. Um, 
earlier on, you said something very striking. I want to take us off on a slightly different tangent here about flourishing having a dark side. Oh, yes, yes. Which is, which is extremely important for us to explore. You know, we, we, yeah. it's widely regarded that to flourish is, you know, is, is many people regard it as the ultimate aim of life and what we should, you know, the, the ultimate pursuit, the ultimate end in itself, if you like, the thing that we should all pursue for its own sake. That's, for example, as Aristotle argues, as you pointed out. But the idea that has a dark side is, is is fascinating. So, could you elaborate further on what you what you mean by this? I think there are there are several ways in which, particularly as we see it in in Plato and Aristotle, it can have a dark side. So, firstly, um, because for both of them, it's an objective notion to do with the fullest actualization of our human faculties. They take this actualization in terms of the faculties of the species as a whole. And they think that some people are able to actualize faculties better than others because some people are born with more rational potential than others, so they think. And indeed, of course, there are people who are born with various kinds of uh, disabilities or physical disabilities and so on. So they have a hierarchy of flourishing which I find very disturbing. Mm -hmm. And um, in Aristotle, it's males at the top. With Plato, it's a few males and a few females at the top, but a lot of other men and women lower down. And alas, they both think that there are natural slaves who are not born with sufficient rational capacity to run their own lives. So I find that hierarchy of flourishing deeply disturbing. Is there a way out of it? I think there is. And this is why I always say I'm, I want to try to rework an ancient Greek ethics of flourishing for the 21st century, not just go back to it. You can do it, I think, or the way to start doing it is saying, no, we're looking at the flourishing of the individual. How can each individual best actualize whatever capacities they have in whatever social and political and cultural circumstances they find themselves? What is the best life for that individual, given all their particular uh, contingent complex circumstances. And that, I think, is one way forward to so get rid of the notion of an objective notion of a species flourishing and to look still pretty objective, but in terms of the individual in their particular set of circumstances. And that, I think, um, helps quite a lot. There's also, of course, a worry, and this is certainly uh, this worry became a reality in uh, Plato's dialogue, The Republic, is that if you think that some people do not have very good reasoning ability, you will think, as the character of Socrates says in Plato's Republic, that for some people it will be better for them that they will have more well-being if their lives are run by other people, mm -hmm. people who have better intellect by nature or better education, better training, better experience, the philosopher rulers of the Republic. So it can also tend to in a very authoritarian, indeed, and paternalistic direction, which again, I would want to reject completely. Is there a way we can uh, work our way out of that problem? Sorry, is there a way that we can tackle that problem? Again, I think there is. I think it's about building notions of Kantian autonomy and agency into what it means to flourish and what it is to actualize your faculties, that this is something you need to be doing 
nearly always for yourself, uh, running your own life, being an autonomous agent. So there's there's too much to go into in great detail here, but I think it is possible to take an ethics and politics of flourishing, which does not have to end up going down an authoritarian or paternalistic route. And that's by building a notion of autonomy into what you think it is for an individual to flourish. Um, There are other problems. As we've seen, Plato identifies flourishing and virtue. Great, we think. He also identifies both with mental health. Initially, we think great and, and Freud, as we've seen, is very interested in that. There's lots of positives there. But also, of course, if you're going to identify virtue with mental health, then that means vice is identified with mental illness. And again, you've got massive potential for political and medical exploitation and abuse of that, because people who annoy you in a state, political dissidents for instance, as in Stalinist Russia, can be accused of uh, being mentally ill and shipped off to some uh, corrupt sanatorium for a lobotomy or whatever. And you get the scenario, you know, and many of us will have seen the brilliant film or read the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So you, you don't want a situation where virtue and health and vice and illness are identified in ways which doctors, psychiatrists, politicians can abuse. So there are real problems uh, which we need to guard against. And we don't do the notion of flourishing justice if we adjust all everything in the garden is rosy about it we have to be aware of the dangers and how historically it is a concept that has often been abused and has often led down pretty authoritarian indeed sometimes totalitarian routes by right-wing or left-wing extremists so we need to watch out it's such an interesting sort of web of connection you're here weaving for us here and um, a complicated and intricate dance. I think autonomy, right, as a core need, we know for, for I think, most human beings, frankly, yeah. Yeah. kind of, you know, this sense of individualism while understanding that that's in many ways very cultural, right? We had David Johnson on earlier and he talked about, you know, differences a lot of times, um, between various cultural orientations towards flourishing and well-being that are more communitarian and meaning-based as opposed to individualistic or happiness-based, mm-hmm. right? Trying to figure out how to thread the needle, so to speak, with some of these different things. And it, it I comes mean, back to this. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. There's one thing I wanted to add to the possible dangers or at least tendencies we need to be alert to. And you've just mentioned communitarianism and it Mm. can apply here, though it doesn't have to, is that we've talked about how it's an ethics that's based on the questions, how should I live? What sort of person should I be? Uh, In Plato in particular, he's interested in the spirited element of our psyche, which wants success, which wants honour, That means it's an approach to ethics that's going to lead us to look for role models and life models. Because how do you get honour in your community? Well, emulate a character, whether historical or fictional, who's already honoured. So it tends to 
privilege the notion of role models and life models. And we see that in communitarianism too. Um, that can be great. And again, I find that very, it's often rich, it's helpful, it links in with the whole notion of the narrative structure that we've been talking about. But a role model culture will tend to be very conservative with a small c. By nature, you are replicating what's already there. Now, Plato is aware of this, and that's why in the Republic, because he doesn't like the role models on offer in Greek society and Homer and so on, he just rips it all up and starts again from kind of year zero uh, in this very radical new uh, vision of an ideally just state. Um, I don't agree with his vision in many ways, but he's completely correct to recognize the conservative tendencies um, of this approach to ethics and ethics of flourishing and a politics of flourishing and how that needn't be a bad thing, but we need to recognize that sometimes we are going to need to establish new traditions, new role models, um, as indeed we're seeing around the world at the moment. We're getting you know, some fabulous new role models are coming along, and a lot of them are teenagers and 20-somethings. Um, so it's not necessarily a problem so long as one is aware that an ethics and politics of flourishing will tend to replicate itself, unless you're alert to that and are prepared sometimes to say, right, our existing role models and traditions are not good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are not healthy. We need to start mm -hmm. again. Um, and, you know, and again, that that can be an issue with communitarianism um, in, in somebody like McIntyre, who I think would not want to endorse those dangers himself. But his work in, you know, after virtue, it can, whether he liked it, wanted that or not, I think not. But it can tend in a conservative, direct, very conservative direction. Thank you so much for your response, Angie. This has been such a rich conversation. Our final question today is one we like to ask all our guests, and we call it the flourishing question. Yes. <laughs> What's the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with, and what might be a practical step to putting that lesson into action? Sorry, long pause here. Yeah, we're ending the bangers. We can't wait. You'll be in the suspense. Every day, no matter how difficult your situation, no matter how challenging, there is always something that you can do with the faculties that you have, intellectual, emotional, imaginative, physical, to improve your situation a bit and to improve the situation of the community or world around you a bit. I, I should, I'll say that again, There's, I'll say it again. Oh, I um, loved it. Because no, it's, it's actually it's actually nearly always something. But anyway, I mean, it's okay if you want if you want something really punchy, we'll go with always something you can do. <laughs> uh, I, so I just I just texted John. I said, "There's our promo quote." So I actually <laughs> thought it was perfect. <laughs> okay, that's, that's the social media clip. I've got to go. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Professor Angie Hobbs, for joining us today. This has been absolutely fascinating. Learned so yeah. much about about your work and about ancient Greek thought, Plato, Aristotle, and Really interesting, you know, themes are really important for us to be thinking about, about human flourishing, such as its dark side. Where can people find out more about you and your work? 
I have a website, AngieHobbs.com, and that is kept reasonably up to date. And it also has my sort of Twitter uh, handle and so on on it. So that would be the best place to start. And it's also got recent publications, TV and radio programs, other podcasts and so on. Uh, But thank you. I just want to thank you, both of you, because thank you for inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel very honoured to be invited onto this series and I've really enjoyed our discussion so thank you thank as have we thank you so much Andy. so ha- you enjoy the rest of your day and yeah. i wish i wish a flourishing life to all your listeners thank you so much thank you so much yep. take care see you soon angie bye now take care bye bye take care huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show if you like what you heard please share it with friends family colleagues and be sure to leave us a five-star review Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that, so your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.